Support for Motley Fool Money comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com fool. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best thing in life are free, but you can from Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. From Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jeff Fisher. And from Supernova, David Kretzman. Happy earnings palooza, gentlemen. Hey, Chris. Hey. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We will get a preview of the upcoming Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting from CNBC's Becky Quick. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with a couple of tech giants that are only getting bigger. Alphabet and Amazon. And David, we'll start with Alphabet. Shares hitting a new all-time high on Friday after first quarter profits came in solidly higher than expected. And something we've talked about before, the growth in online and mobile advertising is basically dominated by two companies. Facebook is one, and Google's the other. Yeah, Google's sales accelerated, which is incredible for a company at $640 billion in size. So their sales went up 22% to nearly $25 billion for the quarter. Diluted earnings per share up 28%. Free cash flow up 34%. And now the company has almost $90 billion in net cash on its balance sheet. So, all in all, a great quarter. As you said, mobile search and YouTube are really the the driving force for for Alphabet at this point. A lot of things going well for the company. They've got all that cash, Jeff, but Ruth Porat, the CFO, and you got to be happy about this if you're an Alphabet shareholder, she keeps a tight grip on that money. And so, one of the things that we've heard about in the past, the moonshot division at, at Google, they're, you know, she's keeping a close eye on them, and good for her. Yeah, they're generating so much free cash flow, Chris, that they can invest literally billions in outside ventures or moonshots, as you said, and still have plenty of money adding onto the balance sheet. Meanwhile, the stock, the shares only trade at 21.4 times expected earnings for the year ahead. So, it's still, I think, actually below the market average multiple, which doesn't make much sense, or it's right at the market average, more or less. But for a company, doesn't that seem crazy to say about a company that's what second or third largest public company yeah, in the world, and of this quality to not uh, not be at a premium? Uh, it, and and we can't all forget either that the, the internet is still young. The ad dollars moving to the internet are still just a fraction of the total ad dollars out there in the world. And a lot of people still don't have high-speed internet access. And David, you look at YouTube, which is so meaningful to the bottom line of the company, still surprising to realize that in terms of Alphabet's expectations of YouTube, of that division, they feel like they still don't have it quite where they want it to be. Yeah, I think there's still a lot of room to grow, especially as digital video rises in in prominence, which continues to happen. This will be the first year where digital advertising surpasses traditional TV advertising. And uh, YouTube TV, which is YouTube's live TV offering, it's already available in in, uh, in five cities around the U.S. And don't forget other... uh, apps and programs at Google, like Maps, Android, Google Play, Gmail, a lot of different levers Google can pull going forward. Let's move on to Amazon. First quarter sales rose 23%, and Jason, Amazon Web Services just continues to grow. Yeah, I think with Amazon here, it's it's the more things change, the more they stay the same. And it's just quarter in, quarter out. We don't get a heck of a lot of information from these guys 
um, in the release or the call. They, they kind of play their numbers close to the vest. But I think at some point, the market's going to fall out of love with all the investments Jeff, Jeff Bezos is making in the business. And, and we may see some pullback in the stock again. I don't think that time is now. Uh, there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic. I think they, they continue to really perform very well in North America. Um, operating margins were down a little bit this quarter in North America, thanks to a lot of investment in the Echo uh, sort of ecosystem they're trying to build out. Um, Amazon Web Services continues to really impress. There's 43% uh, growth there, with operating margins up close to a full percentage point for the quarter over the same quarter last year. So they continue to really compete on the pricing side and grow out their market share with that part of the business. And let's not forget about India. This is a tremendous opportunity where they're making a lot of early investments. I was uh, going back through Twitter. I remember I'd seen a tweet that Matty Argersinger fired out earlier this week, and it was something in regard to uh, the the growth there in India. If we look at eight of the ten fastest growing cities in Asia over the coming fifteen years are in India. So it makes a lot of sense uh, the investments that Amazon is making in in that region today, and I think they will eventually pay off as as with most things. Bit of a longer timeline than most, but the market seems to to want to give Jeff uh, Bezos and the company some slack. I was going to say along those lines, I thought it was pretty telling that in the press release, the first quote from Jeff Bezos was all about India. Yeah. It was all about the increase in Prime membership, original TV series, integrated integrated voice search. I mean, he's clearly got his eyes there. Yeah, and it's the most downloaded and used app in India as well. And it's interesting, if you missed Amazon's growth in the U.S. these past 15 years or so, you get to now see it possibly be replicated in a country with many, many more people. Now, granted, the GDP per capita in India is a fraction of the U.S., but when you add the multiplier of the number of people, it's still a sizable industry or market for them to address. It's like watching them grow all over again. Yeah, you know, we got some questions over earlier in the week where there was some news coming out that Amazon was talking about making a push into the furniture um, industry, doing a little bit more sort of what Wayfair is doing. And I think the the immediate reaction was, oh my God, this is the Wayfair killer. I, I would not make that leap right off the bat. I think that this certainly validates the opportunity that Wayfair has seen. Uh, but, you, think, but, you think Wayfair's excited that Amazon is entering I'm not, their business? I'm not making that big of a leap, but what I am saying is um, it's one thing to sort of voice your plans or a strategy there, but it's another thing to actually be able to carry it out. And this is very early stages of, of what they're actually trying to do now. Yes, what they're trying to do is right in their wheelhouse. And if you are Wayfair, you've got to be looking at this and thinking, holy cow, this game just got a little bit tougher. Yeah, a lot of attention on India, and rightly so. I was surprised that they announced 18 original TV series produced in India. So that, that's a, a large number. But then Mexico is another area where they're investing. They launched Prime in Mexico this quarter, has 20 million eligible products, free two-day shipping across the country. So that international investment continues to ramp up for Amazon. Third quarter revenue from Microsoft came in a little lower than Wall Street was expecting. And in this case, Jeff, slightly lower revenue means Microsoft only sold $23.5 billion worth of goods and services. This is, I mean, yet another strong quarter from Satya Nadella and his team. What's exciting, too, is you don't think about it much these days anymore, but Office 365 and Windows 10 are still enormous cash flow machines that are, it has allowed Microsoft to plow that money back into cloud and AI, where it's going now, and machine learning and uh, mixed reality, all these fun things they talk about now in the conference call. And uh, the company is uh, growing very well. It's, it's core business and now in cloud as well. It's a real contender. It's amazing when you think that Nadella's been CEO for a little over three years, and Microsoft, where the stock was 
you know, basically flat for a really long time is in some ways acting like a growth stock. It's up 80% since he took over. I mean, did you, Jason, did you think that a company as big as Microsoft would make such an enormous pivot to the cloud in the way that they had? Well, I mean, they clearly needed to do something. And I think that I'm not calling Steve Ballmer complacent or lazy, but it's that was the vibe I think a lot of people were, were getting after after his decade of sort of the stock going nowhere. And so I, clearly there is a massive opportunity in the cloud. I, I kind of wonder still, and I'd be interested to get thoughts around the table, how we're feeling about this LinkedIn acquisition, because Every time I check into LinkedIn, it just seems like it gets worse and worse and worse. I understand the acquisition was for the data, but if it's a bad interface, if it's, if it's a bad experience, I mean, how much data are you really pulling in and how valuable is it? I mean, I kind of wonder at some point, is, Le- is LinkedIn even still really well, that? They they pretty much opened the call with it. They said this yeah. is the first quarter with LinkedIn's results included, and they surpassed 500 million users and 10 million jobs listed. And so they're happy with it, and they're investing in the content. But they sound happy with it. If you're thirsty for profitable companies, if you hunger for stock ideas to put on your watch list, this next segment is just for you. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Jeff Fisher, and David Kretzman. 2017, off to kind of a slow start for Boston Beer Company. Overall shipments in the first quarter were 50% lower than a year ago. Uh, Jason, on last week's show, you put Boston Beer on your radar. That was your radar stock last week. Did you like what you saw? Slow start, Chris, maybe, but I'm doing my part. I'm trying to help these guys out. Just <laughs> only so much one man can do, I think. Um, look, I mean, this summer, I think, is really shaping up to be an extremely important period of time for Boston Beer because they, they are really stuck in this rut where they the, the trend is the same. Depletions are falling. They're just not selling as much beer as they used to. And and what's even more concerning, really, is that beer is is becoming a smaller percentage of what they're selling because they have cider and they have the sparkling seltzers and whatnot. So the reason why summer is very important, they have a summer ale that is really a very strong brand within that portfolio. They have had a lot of success with it over the past couple of decades. They saw a lot of weakness here this spring in their seasonal offerings. There's some confusion, some new products. They weren't really, um, I think, tested well, perhaps, on their market. I, I think Boston Beer is going to have to try to figure out a way to get out of this twilight zone. I mean, they're just too big to be considered craft beer in their current iteration. There are ways for them to still participate in the smaller, more local craft market. But I think that it, it involves introducing some new brands, perhaps that aren't quite as directly associated with the Boston beer brand, so to speak. And, and again, I, I do think that that founder Jim Cook, he's kind of he's kind of getting sick of the way uh, craft beer is getting treated by by the big two uh, beer providers out there. I, I, I can't help but wonder if there's a point in time where he just decides he wants to hang this up. But you know, time will tell. Again, the stock I don't think is going to go anywhere anytime soon. So five years from now, I mean, is a one potential future for Boston Beer Company that it looks a little bit more like a, a much smaller version of Diageo, or just it's got a beverage portfolio and it has dominant brands, but. Do they need to start looking at some smart regional acquisitions? I think that's a distinct possibility. I know they don't want to do that in the face of, of rich multiples today, but they've talked about uh, potential acquisitions before. And there's also the possibility that he may just batten down the hatches and sort of ride this storm out. He made a reference in, in, the, in the call last quarter about how Corona just got back to 
uh, their 2008 volumes in 2016. So there was about an eight-year stretch there, a cycle where Corona's volumes were very depressed, kind of like what Boston Beer is going through. That's a sign, at least, that maybe Jim Cook is just going to use the, the the brand power here, the financial resources the business has, to kind of sit and weather the storm. Again, the company can make it okay, but I don't think that plays out very well for shareholders. I think the key for Boston Beer is that they, they have time to wait it out. They don't have to, to get impatient and buy expensive or overpriced breweries. I mean, the amount of craft breweries in the U.S. I think is over 5,000 now. It's just gone up. It, it's skyrocketed since 2009. But Boston Beer, they can afford to be patient. They have $60 million in cash on the balance sheet, no debt. They're producing almost $100 million in free cash flow each year. So they, they can be patient. They can uh, – I, I think at some point this craft beer movement, it plateaus, and you're going to see some consolidation there. So at that point, I think they'd be in a great position to put that cash to work and acquire some of those uh, breweries at a lower price. Yeah, David's right. They can be patient, and they will be. Uh, Jim Cook says at every call, he says they have a choice between – making overpriced acquisitions or investing in in themselves and buying back shares of their stock. And until those multiples come to, to a, a comfort level for them, they're going to continue to buy back their stock. Starbucks second quarter profits looked pretty good, but shares falling a bit this week because for the second quarter in a row, same-store sales came in light, Jeff. Yeah, they only came in around 3% in the U.S., and they're targeting 5% in the U.S. That said, the traffic did pick up in March and April, and Overall, the business looks healthy. I actually question that management is is guiding or promising five percent same store sales year after year. Now that it's such a you know a thirty something year old business, uh, I think that's a bit aggressive, and it, it may push them into areas where they maybe shouldn't go. But that said, food uh, sales in the U.S. accounted for about one fifth of all sales and growing, and accounted for two percent of the same store sales growth. So. Food is proving to be key, and they're putting more effort and emphasis into their food menu. Do you think this push towards what they refer to as, look, historically, we're growing sales about 5%. Do you think that aggressive target is why we saw this godforsaken unicorn frappuccino drink (laughs) that not a single person I talked to who tried it liked? They're like, you got to try it. Why? Because it might be the worst thing I've ever tasted. (laughs) Like That's not selling me. And it it drove so much traffic and did so well that they're planning new ones already, new different drinks. The dragon. I don't question the strategy of sort of the limited edition, you know, like they've done very successfully with the pumpkin spice latte. I just, I don't know a single person who liked how this thing tasted. I have mixed feelings about it too, because you know Howard Schultz, he he fell in love with coffee cafes in Italy, and that's why I started Starbucks. You don't think they're selling these over in Italy? (laughs) It's really hard to imagine anything like this being sold at at a, you know... Reputable Italian. Maybe they will now, though. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, he's made it America, and whatever that says about America, you can sit there and think about it for a while. Tough. But, uh, you know, the stock is expensive, Chris, is what it comes back to. It's 27 times forward earnings estimates, so they need to keep performing to keep that stock up. But long term, like Microsoft, like Boston Beer, they have a stable business if they don't mess that up that will allow them to experiment, find new ways to grow the business down the road. Tough first quarter for Buffalo Wild Wings. They missed on profit. They lowered guidance, and they're also closing some locations. David, yeah, not not a great quarter. It's kind of a triple or quadruple whammy of a variety of factors. One of the the big ones that's really starting to bite them now is higher chicken wing costs. Chicken wings account for about thirty percent of their cost of sales, 
And those prices just keep going up more than management anticipated. So you have that factor. Then you have wages going up. So they're paying more for for labor. Then you have such a competitive restaurant environment now. So to get people into the stores, you have to run promotions. But it's tough to run promotions when the the cost of your main product is going up pretty quickly. So earnings down 34%. They lowered guidance for the rest of the year. Uh, They they announced a cost-saving initiative over the next couple of years that will hopefully save $50 million. I, I do like that management is focusing on takeout, delivery, digital. They have a loyalty program with one and a half million members now. So they are focusing on some good things. But one thing I don't like uh, that management did, they issued over $200 million in debt just to buy back stock this quarter. I think that's a very questionable thing to do when you have a variety of operational issues. You have Mercado, Cap- Mercado Capital, the activist investors, breathing down your neck. I don't think going into more debt to buy back shares at, at this time is a smart idea. Is the stock inexpensive? Because it's the shares are up about 20%. Even with every challenge we've just talked about, over the last year, the stock is still up around 20%. I'm wondering if, at least in management's mind, they look at it and they say, this is a really cheap stock. No, the, the valuation wasn't all, all that great. Right now, it's about 30 times trailing earnings. Typically, historically, if if the stock goes to 25 earnings or below, that's a good time to buy. So that's another reason I question it. Like the stock did not look cheap, but still they're issuing, as I said, over 200 million dollars in debt to buy back stock. In addition to all the other issues they have, I just feel like there's a better use of that cash. Jason, when you look across the restaurant space, and this week you see Domino's Pizza crushing it once again, and Grubhub, the mm-hmm. startup uh, restaurant delivery service, stock up 25 percent on their latest quarter. It kind of seems like as we talked about last week with housing, people want to sort of you know build up their homes and, and hunker down and watch Netflix and have food <laughs> delivered. It feels like if you don't have a delivery strategy, you better get one. No, I think you have to have one. And I think that's why Grubhub uh, has, has such a, a great opportunity in front of it, because it's not just Grubhub. Remember, it's seamless as well. And, and, and that just, to me, it's an automatic for any restaurant out there. I mean, you don't have to have really any sort of delivery operations. You just link up with one of these guys, and they basically take care of the rest. You just need to make sure you have uh, the staffing in there to take care of any of any incremental orders. Uh, but, but we saw the same thing with McDonald's. I mean, McDonald's going to be focusing on digital and delivery and the experience of the future. I mean, it's, it's kind of an amazing time to think about. McDonald's delivery, really? But yeah, I mean, apparently the demand is out there. Yeah, Grubhub revenue was up 40% year over year. They sent out $10 million worth of takeout every single day uh, to 50,000 different from 50,000 different restaurants. And Starbucks opened their conference call by saying you absolutely must have a mobile and a delivery and digital strategy in, in this day and era. And they talked about how more uh, stores more have closed in the first quarter of 2017 than did in all of 2016. And more retail stores, mostly around malls, are going to close this year than during the Great Recession. So everything's changing out there, and you need a, a new strategy. Up next, CNBC's Becky Quick is getting ready to interview Warren Buffett at the upcoming Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. We'll get a preview next. This is Motley Fool Money. All right, we're going to get to Becky Quick in a minute, but first, got to say thanks to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, you want to work with someone you can trust and has your best interests in mind. And with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. Nobody wants to do that. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial information and get a mortgage approval in minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time 
to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So if you're looking to buy a home or you're looking to refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. So skip the bank, skip the waiting, skip the paperwork. Go completely online at quickenloans.com slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Next weekend, the investing world turns its eyes to Omaha, Nebraska, for Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting, the highlight of which is the Q&A session with Warren Buffett and his right-hand man, Charlie Munger. One of the moderators for that session is our guest this week. She is the co-host of CNBC's Squawk Box, Becky Quick. Always good to talk to you. Chris, it's always good to talk to you, and I uh, thank you for inviting me. I know you sat down with Warren Buffett a couple of months ago. I want to get to that in a moment. But in terms of the annual meeting, what is the question that you're most excited to ask Warren Buffett this time around? Look, there's some good controversial ones, and I'm I'm hoping he doesn't hear this in advance, but one of the things that I'm dying to talk to him about is the United Airlines situation. Um, he's an investor in airlines now, and we all have seen the video footage of Dr. David Dow getting dragged off of the airlines. And Just as a consumer and a customer, I, it, it kind of outrages me. I just feel like we've gotten to that point in airlines where it's a pretty familiar picture to be looking at road rage and to be looking at some of these airlines treating people um, not as if they're customers, but as as if they're cattle. So honestly, that's one of the things I want to ask him about, because he finally decided this was the right time to invest in the airlines. And uh, I, I just want to know what he thinks about some of the customer service issues right now. Investing in airlines aside, you've watched public companies up close for the past couple of decades. Can you remember a company bungling uh, an incident from no, a PR and, and, standpoint, I, the way they did? No, I, I mean, I was on vacation. I was actually in Disney World when I saw the video of what happened to the guy. And I thought, wow, that's a horrible situation. But it wasn't until I saw the CEO's response a day or two later that my blood really boiled. The idea that they said, oh, we stand by our employees and this was a, you know, a, a belligerent passenger. I thought, yeah, he was belligerent because you were yanking him out of the seat that he paid to be sitting in and you beat him up in the process. I'd be belligerent too. So it wasn't until I saw the CEO's response that I really thought, hey, this is outrageous. Um, they just, you know, talk about pushing things just a little bit too far. Let's go to the investing angle. I mean, this is something that has certainly, I mean, Buffett's done a 180 on airlines. When you and I were talking yeah. a year ago, this was not the case. And since then, Berkshire Hathaway buying shares of not just United Continental, but also Delta, Southwest, American did the airline business suddenly become an amazing investment? That's what I want to talk to him about in regards to this. Are they doing it on the backs of their passengers? Look, we have seen a lot of consolidation in the airline business, and I'm guessing that has to be a big part of why he thinks they're so attractive at this point. But it's it's so interesting to watch him with airlines because airlines, that had been the U.S. air bet was one of the worst bets he'd ever made. He has sworn both in interviews and in his annual letter to shareholders that he would never get back in the airline industry. In fact, if you did, to give him an 800 number to make sure that he got out uh, to, to stop him from, save him from himself if he was going to invest in these airlines again. Uh, but you're right, this is a 180. And this is one that I, I, I think you chuckled a bit as he was doing it, knowing that people were going to have this reaction, like, you got to be kidding me. What 
you know, dogs and cats living together. This is one of those moments for Warren Buffett to be going back into airlines. There must be some substantial change that he's seen. And that's what I'd like to dig into a little bit deeper with him this weekend, too. In terms of his biggest investments, the one that continues to be in the spotlight, and not necessarily for great reasons, is his investment in IBM. A year mm-hmm. ago, we had Charlie Munger coming out and saying, I'm not a believer in this, but he stands by what Buffett is doing. Um, <laughs> when you sat down with Buffett a couple of months ago, it seemed like one of the big reasons he's invested in IBM is the dividend. Is like, is that yeah. it? Is it just like, hey, this is a cash machine for me? You know, the dividend certainly has made this uh, an issue that he hasn't lost his shirt on, a bet that he hasn't lost his shirt on because they've paid out so much in the dividends. But his rationale that he's laid out in the past is that he thinks they've they've made some real progress with Watson. He thinks that they have some stickiness, some staying power, where if you're in a company, it's pretty hard to get rid of it. Um, But we'll see. We'll see if he still feels that way, um, because now it's been more than 20 quarters in a row of declining revenue. We knew that this was going to be a big shift that was going to take a lot of time for it to turn. But investors keep asking the question, and you've seen it in stock and in shares of IBM since they came out with that earnings report. Investors still have the question is, okay, when, when do we see the tipping point? When do we actually say... We've gotten rid of all the empty calories in terms of revenue and businesses that aren't profitable. And now we're, we're, we've turned direction, and, and now we're going back about building up our revenue and building up the company again. And that, you know, that, that's a good question. You have to wonder if he's losing patience with it, too. Uh, to this point, he has defended them quarter after quarter after quarter. Um, but this will be one more chance to get to ask him because the stock had risen a bit. Um, it was above the average purchase price that he'd made for the shares, uh, but now I think it's fallen back below that. Of course, as you point out, the dividends have been big payouts, and so that has made it a winning bet for him, even though um, the stock price wouldn't reflect that. It's interesting because, on the one hand, Warren Buffett is so complimentary of Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. but he does not own shares of Amazon. He says, you know, retailing is tough for me to figure out, and I. I see that, and I just sort of scratch my head because, to me, just from the standpoint of understanding a business, Amazon seems like an easier business to wrap your head around than IBM. Yeah, and, and so I, I'm wondering if, like, if if Amazon starts paying a dividend, is that going to be the magic key that that turns Buffett into a shareholder? You know, it, it, it is interesting that he's never bought shares of Amazon because he's he's gone on the record and said that he thinks. Jeff Bezos is about the best CEO out there at this moment. And, and Buffett has always been somebody who's been so big on betting on the management. And if you believe in the person, going ahead and believing in their vision. Um, look, he's gotten burned in retail bets in the past. And so the retail aspect is certainly is one that he is a little wary of. But I think it's also just valuation. It's, he has a hard time. It's outside of his circle of competence in terms of trying to figure out a retailer that's really a high-tech company and has so many other things, and then trying to figure out the valuation for that. I, I, he, he also says that you know you don't have to swing at every pitch, and you wait for the ones that you know are within your circle of competence and, and, until it's a sure thing. So that may be what keeps him out of it. But again, all of those things are also things that people were so surprised to see him move into uh, shares of Apple recently and uh, shares of IBM, like we've been talking about. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Becky Quick, one of the hosts of CNBC Squawk Box, which you can catch each weekday morning. She's also the host of the weekend show On the Money. So whatever the network is paying her is probably not enough. Um, in terms of 
In terms of the annual letter, uh, Berkshire Hathaway has $86 billion in cash equivalents. Buffett said we would love to do something big. Do you have any guess on what could be the next target or even in what industry the next acquisition would come from? Don't. Uh, but what I can say is that he is on the prowl and is always looking. I, I don't think he's excited about anything as much as he gets excited about another big deal. And $86 billion, that's a massive cash hoard. It's got to be burning a hole in his pocket at this point. So my, the only thing I can say with certainty is that I, my guess is he must be on the prowl, on the hunt, because I just think that's his natural existence is to constantly be on the prowl. And when you've got money like that to put behind it, that, that um, only uh, ups the uh, ante and ups the likelihood that something does get done. But no, I don't have any idea what industry it might be. I've tried to figure it out in the past, like what would be the logical next step for him to move into. And every time I do, I'm completely wrong. Um, he always manages to come up with some industry I hadn't thought about, some area I hadn't thought about, even in the origin, the country uh, that I, I hadn't been anticipating. So nothing would surprise me unless you told me that he was not on the prowl. I want to go back to the annual meeting and the big Q&A session where you get to ask questions, but also shareholders get to just stand up, step to the microphone and ask their own question. You've done this a few times. I'm curious if you know in your bones, what is a business question that Warren Buffett just bristles at. You know, someone steps up to the mic, they ask a business question, and you just you just start looking down at your notes because you know he really doesn't want to hear this question. You know, the only question that I think he doesn't love hearing, I, I don't know if there is a business question so much as what stocks would you invest in? How would you, uh, like if, if you could buy one stock right now, what would it be? I think he gets weary of that question not just at the annual shareholders meeting, but I've, I've traveled with him uh, to different countries and, and, and kind of followed him with the cameras and, and watched. And I think that's the question he definitely gets sick of. A lot of media would come from overseas and ask him the same thing again. What do you think about uh, our country's stock market? What do you think about the best stocks to own are right now? And I think that gets tiresome because everybody thinks because he's a, an investing genius that he must be able to tell you the secret to uh, increasing your net worth automatically with a couple of good stock picks. And I, I think that's a question he just gets hounded with everywhere he goes. Everybody wants to know is what's what's a what's a great stock tip you can give me and nobody else. That's the only question I've ever seen him really kind of roll his eyes at or get sick of. Do you think he is enjoying his business life more now than 10, 20 years ago? I'm, I was thinking back to a few weeks ago when Ron Shake, the CEO of Panera Bread, was on your network in the wake of the news that Panera Bread was going to be going private, and he looked downright giddy at the prospect. Didn't he? I, I, that guy was just uh, so full of energy and so um... – pumped up about the whole situation and not because he was selling out, but because he was going to be able to do more and work harder. That was, that was a true um, entrepreneurial spirit. I think we got to see that day. Yeah, it really was. And I just thought, boy, he looks so excited to just take all of the parts of his job that include dealing with a public company and just putting those aside. In terms of Warren Buffett, to what extent do you think he enjoys the attention that comes with being a public market CEO. You know, I didn't. I didn't know him twenty years ago. Uh, I didn't know him fifteen years ago, uh, but I did know him ten and eleven years ago. And um, I, I would say one thing: is, is love 
of his work hasn't diminished a bit. Uh, in fact, you know, if, if anything, he probably only enjoys it more. Um, I, 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 he's talked in the past about how he's not always found of some of the personnel decisions. He doesn't like to fire any, any someone. He doesn't want to have to reprimand people when they're not doing things that he, he thinks are done the way that they should be. Uh, one thing I've learned being around him is, is he's always underspoken. Um, he, ne- he never comes in and yells at people and never comes in and, and gets really harsh. And, and that's why, you know, the people around him, I think, are very attuned to that. So um, he tends to praise by name and criticize by category. And look, we all want a boss like that, right? Absolutely. Last question, then I'll let you go. You've sat down with Warren Buffett. You've sat down and interviewed presidents. Recently, you sat down with someone that in some ways is a tougher get than the president of the United States, and that's Bill Murray, the the reclusive Bill Murray. I'm curious if you picked up any golf tips or life tips from Bill Murray. I did. Um, Look, Bill Murray is one of those guys you just pinch. You're like, no way do I actually get to talk to him right now. He he had me pick up a, a golf club. I was out at the the AT and T Pebble Beach, the pro am out there, and um, I, I I had texted back and forth with him a couple of times. I thought maybe we, he was going to meet with us for an interview, but with Bill Murray, you kind of got to just roll with it and be ready. I hadn't heard from him in a week before I went out there, and couldn't get him to return either my calls or my texts. So I just showed up when I knew that they were going to be teeing off for. Um, this charitable thing that they do. And sure enough, he called me about five minutes before and said, are you ready to go? And (laughs) thankfully I was standing there waiting. Um, He gave me a golf club and actually tried to teach me how to swing. Now I had nowhere to go, but up I stink, but he is the most generous and fun person to be around. And man, that was a, that was a dream come true to get to spend a little time with him. So he he improved my golf game, but that's not saying much because I I really stunk before. If you want to get a jump on the business news of the day, tune in to CNBC's Squawk Box with the host, Becky Quick. Becky, always great to talk to you. Have a great time in Omaha. Hey, Chris, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Coming up next, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Jeff Fisher, and David Kretzman. You can check out past episodes of Motley Fool Money and all of our shows. Just go to podcast.fool.com. And while you're there, you can test drive Rule Breakers, which is David Gardner's growth stock service. The latest issue just came out this week. Two new stock recommendations from David Gardner and the team. So go to podcast.fool.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the page for more details. High-end retailer Nordstrom reports earnings in two weeks, but the company made headlines this week with their Barracuda Straight Leg Jeans, which retail for $425 and are covered in mud. And I'm quoting directly from the company's website describing the jeans. The jeans come, quote, with a caked-on, muddy coating that shows you're not afraid to get down and dirty. <laughs> it's as if you were wrestling a barracuda. What? What are they? What are they going for here? This seems like such a miss. Like wildly expensive jeans that come with mud on them. So Fake you can, mud, not so you, even real. Right. Synthetic. So you can pretend that you're, I don't know, and. and 
average person working outside? I wish I was in the meeting where this idea came up and got thumbed up. This is their version of the unicorn frappuccino. (laughs) I I want to be in the meeting where they they bring back the person who gave this the green light. Isn't that the better meeting? Probably someone who came from Urban Outfitters who had had the idea. This really seems like an Urban Outfitters move. So there's been a big backlash, as you said, Chris, on social media. And there is serious potential implications for Nordstrom's brand, which is a stands for a lot, stands for quality and fashion. You don't want to taint that with fickle yeah, buyers. All we need is for them to saddle up with, uh, what, United? <laughs> United's having a, cuff, uh, t- a tough couple of weeks here. Sure. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man Steve Roido, out with an undisclosed injury. He'll be back <laughs> next week, but uh, our man Rick Engdahl filling in for Steve. He's going to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Yeah, they reported on Thursday. Stock is selling off big. Uh, Ellie Mae, ticker is ELLI. We've talked about this before. They are a mortgage software uh, provider. Company is is doing very well. They added another twelve thousand one hundred Encompass uh, seats during the quarter. They now have uh, more than two hundred twenty five thousand contracted users um, on the company's software platform. Again, they are just putting all of this mortgage software together, making this process more seamless, easier to use, uh, less expensive for lenders to get those loans closed. And so, I think. Uh, we're seeing really Ellie Mae just continue to, to develop this network and grow their competitive advantage. Another thing that's really exciting about this business is they're really looking beyond mortgage lending. Half of their customers are actual banks that do all sorts of lending, from personal to auto to student. Um, so they basically are looking at this as the operating system of lending that they're building. So I think there's still a big market opportunity out for this uh, this company, and I, I like the sell off in the stock. I think it's worth uh, worth considering. For the portfolio, Rick. Question about Ellie May. Are you a customer, Jason? You have a mortgage. You know that's really interesting. You say that we just got done buying a house, and we did actually use Ellie May's products. Our lender had us uh, going, you know, adding a lot of that stuff through uh, a website, and it was all powered by Ellie May's engine. Hmm. Nice. So now, do you hope they go under and you don't have to pay them back? <laughs> Listen, Jeff, <laughs> I'm on the level here. I'm w- I'm willing to pay my bills. <laughs> David Cressman, what are you looking at? Talking about United, uh, a stock on my radar is Southwest Airlines, ticker LUV. Not only do they not drag customers off their plane in a violent fashion, <laughs> they're also no longer overbooking flights, something that they announced this week. I think that this is exactly the response an airline should have. One of the most customer-centric companies on the planet. Positive culture for all stakeholders, strong balance sheet, good valuation, one I like. Rick, question about Southwest? So, how do you get on that A list at Southwest? <laughs> you have to to pay up or or fly thirty flights in a year, which I did one year. And man, A list it's it's a nice experience. <laughs> Jeff Fisher, we got about a minute left. What are you looking at? Cloudera it came public on Friday. The ticker is CLDR. They provide open source machine learning analytics software that companies can plug into. They dump all their complex data in there, and it spits out an, an answer. Intel is a major investor; owns about twenty two percent of the company. Rick, question about Cloudera? Are they connected all to Huli or Pied Piper? <laughs> Their main product is called something like Hoopa or Haydoop. Haydoop. H-A-D-O-O-P. Now, this said they have $250 million in revenue. They came public at about 10 times that amount. I'm not saying buy the shares by any means. I'm just going to start watching them. It's a really expensive-looking IPO, but an interesting one in machine learning. Three very different businesses, Rick. Um, any you want to add to your watch list there? I think I'll go with hookah. What is it called? Hula? Cloudera? Cloudera. This is That's not the, the way to invest, fools. Yes. But. Rick, I have a hookah by my desk. I'll meet you after the show. Jason Moser, David Kretzman. 
Jeff Fisher, guys, thanks so much for being here. We'll thanks. see you next week. Thanks, All right, Chris. that is going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Rick Engdahl helping out behind the glass this week. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks.